Well, good morning. I am delighted to be here this morning. Um, It's nice to be back at Bromley Road. Let me express my gratitude to Pastor Rob and to the leadership for the privilege of being back with you this morning, and especially on this kickoff Sunday as you get back into the fall. And can I say how delighted I am that God's people are finally getting back into the building together? Can we say an amen? And It's great that God gave us the technology to be able to connect through COVID through Zoom, but there is no substitute for being in the same room with God's people. It's my belief that God does something when we're together that he cannot do when we're sitting by ourselves in front of a screen. So thank you for making the effort to come out this morning, and I know that you will be delighted by the barbecue afterwards. Um, And that is actually the topic today, is the season of delight. We're going to be, over the next three Sundays, looking at various seasons in the Christian life. Today it's the season of delight. Next Sunday it will be the season of the dark night of the soul. And then the following Sunday it will be the season of healing. So we're starting today at Isaiah chapter 61, and we're going to begin reading at verse, uh, verse 1 and read through to verse 11. Hear God's word. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of the spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. You'll feed on the wealth of nations, and in their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you'll receive a double portion, and instead of disgrace, you'll rejoice in your inheritance. And so you will inherit a double portion in your land, and everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I'll reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he's clothed me with the garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness. As a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest, and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels, for as the soil makes the sprout come up and a garden causes seeds to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteousness and praise spring up before all the nations. Amen. May God bless to us his reading from his word. Let's, let's pray together. 
Lord, we thank you for your word that is as true today as ever it was when the words were originally penned by prophets and apostles of old. We pray that that same spirit who inspired prophets and apostles will speak to us today. Bring your word to life for us this morning, we pray, as we seek you in these moments in worship. In Jesus' name, amen. When I say the word delight, what comes to mind for you? There's some images that come to mind for me right away. I hear the word delight, and it's immediately preceded by hot fudge brownie delight. Uh, those of you who are familiar with Dairy Queen know what that looks and tastes like. Some of you maybe th- think about Turkish delight. I know the chocolate bar. I don't know the actual dessert, but that's a delight. Um, For those of you who may have some East Coast roots, you might think of pizza delight. Um, Another thing that people delight in, for me, what especially brings out delight is an East Coast or a Halifax Donair, which is very hard to get in Ontario. Um, And if you want to know what the difference is, talk to me afterwards and I'll give you a full description. So are you all hungry now? Well, it's just beginning. Um... When I think about delight, there's some other things that come to mind, too, as I uh, contemplate what this word means. Think about the delight in a family when a new child is born. But there's one occasion, one place, where delight seems to be most consistently present, and it's a wedding. I've had the privilege of doing lots of weddings over the years in ministry, And I did one in June, and it was particularly delightful, because throughout, from beginning to end, what was evident was the delight the bride had for the groom and the groom had for the bride, and then the delight that the two families had in the marriage that was taking place. And it's actually that image of delight that Isaiah paints for us as he talks about what the Messiah has done and will do and the delight that the Messiah has in the service, the ministry that he would render on our behalf. And so as we look at Isaiah 61, let's just first begin with defining what delight is. So I got out my dictionary. And this is what it says for what delight is. It is to take great pleasure in someone or something. It's to give great enjoyment. It's to please or to gratify. Okay, so hold that picture in your mind. Now, I want to take you back to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 7 for a moment. Because there's a picture there that speaks to me of delight. I was at a, a pastor's uh, retreat in British Columbia a week or so ago. This A week ago, last Sunday, I was speaking in North Vancouver. I'm still not sure what time zone I'm in this week, but um, one of the, the presenters at the retreat uh, last week talked about this passage from Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. So I want you to, to, to think about this is that moment in time when God has formed in the dust Adam. Okay? So think about this. There's this beautiful beach sculpture in the dirt. There is no life in it. It is just dirt. Looks good, but there is no life in it. And then God gets close enough to breathe up the nose of this sand sculpture. And what Genesis 2, 7 tells us is that he breathed the breath of life 
into Adam. Now, I want you to put yourself in the place of Adam for a moment. You have been dirt. And then all of a sudden, life comes into you, and you can almost feel the life come into you. But in that moment, when life first enters you, when breath enters your lungs and you become a living being, and you open your eyes wide to life, what's the first thing you see? Well, how did you get to be alive? It was God breathing life into you. Well, how close do you have to be to somebody to breathe life into them? What's the face that Adam first sees? And I don't care if you don't get anything else out of what I say today, but I hope you'll get this. The first thing that Adam sees is not a face of judgment because sin and the fall haven't happened yet. It's not the face of one who's waiting for him to slip up so he can smack him down. And both of those are views that we often have of God. What he sees is the face of his creator who is delighted in him. What what does the Bible tell us God said after every act of creation? It is good. Well, my translation of that in this particular context of looking at Adam is, not only did God say it is good, but I think we can safely say God is delighted with what he's made. And you understand that the whole act of creation came out of the love and life that were was existing within the Trinity as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit existed in life eternal. And really what it happened was they kind of said to themselves, this is so good, we need to share it. And so they created humanity so humanity could, create, could join in that, that dance of life and of love. And so in the act of creation, you see Adam coming from dirt to life, and the first thing he sees is a face of delight. One of the things I've discovered over the years is that many of us, even those of us who have been in the church all of our lives, have a hard time getting the knowledge that God delights in us from our heads to our hearts. I didn't for many years. I understood it intellectually, but the experience of it was very different because I did not feel delighted in. For most of my life, I felt unwanted, undesirable, unloved. But at that moment where we begin to understand the heart of God and begin to experience with our hearts and our heads, because both are important. God gave us both. They go together. And really, technically, it's one half of your brain versus the other half of your brain. God expresses his delight in us. And what we see in Isaiah chapter 61 then is, because of the fall, that image got broken with humanity. No longer can we see the face of delight. What we see is the face of judgment, and you recognize that after the fall, what's the first thing that Adam and Eve do? They begin to hide from God, and that's what a lot of us do because of our sin. But what we see is, beginning in the garden, God pursues. 
He still wants relationship with a fallen humanity. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. That's Paul's testimony in Romans chapter 3. But God still pursued. And Isaiah 61 is the declaration of what that pursuit would look like in the person of Jesus Christ. That he would come and his desire was that he would restore that fallen image so that once again God's people might experience the face of delight. Just as God breathed life into Adam and for that first moment in time looked up and saw the face of delight through the work of Jesus Christ on the cross for us, he breathes that redemption life back into us so that once again we can look up and see the face of delight. And so Isaiah in this passage tells us all about what our ministry will be. That's the first nine verses, basically, of this chapter as he highlights the ministry that we will have. But you'll also recognize that these, are, these first three verses were the description that Jesus gave of his mission statement. Let me just remind you of what Jesus said about why he came to earth. He said, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of the vengeance of of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion. There is a link here that Isaiah is highlighting for us. And the link is between the Day of Atonement and the Year of Jubilee. Now, you all probably recognize what the Day of Atonement means. That was the day that was set apart in the life of Israel for sacrifices to be made for sin so that sin could be taken away. But there's a link not just with the Day of Atonement, but with the Year of Jubilee. Well, what's the Year of Jubilee? It's the year when all debts are canceled and people are set free. And so there's this connection now between the Day of Atonement and people being set free. And that's the ministry of the Messiah. That's the ministry of Jesus, who's come to set you and me free from the burden of sin, from the bondage of sin, and to break away from the power and the strongholds of the enemy that keep us away from understanding and grasping the significance of the face of delight. And so what we see here is the Messiah being painted. And what we see is an expression of delight. What we see here in particular is not just the delight that we should experience knowing that there is a Messiah who has come for us, a Savior who's come for us, but what we also see here is the delight of the servant himself, Jesus, in the mandate, the mission that he's been given. You can tell a lot by the clothes a person wears, and that's especially true in the the scriptures. The clothing of a king is very different from the clothing of a shepherd. The clothing of can be expressing a, a, a mood, it can be expressing character, it can be expressing commitment, it can be expressive of status. And when you compare a king with somebody else, those that that wardrobe expresses that distinction. And so what we see here are articles of clothing that express something of the nature of what the Messiah would do. 
And we're told that the servant would wear uh, garments of salvation. It says, he's clothed me with garments of salvation. And what that means is looking forward at the Savior who would come. The garments are custom fitted to the servant. He's the only one who can wear them. He's the only one who can bring salvation to God's people. But we also see that in wearing those clothes, in accepting them, he accepts his commitment to the task. So these clothes, these garments of salvation, communicate that the Messiah understands his role and accepts it on our behalf. But we're also told that he is arrayed in the robe of righteousness. Now, let's be clear. The garments of salvation are garments that are pointed towards us. The Messiah doesn't need salvation. You and I do. Because we're alienated from God because of our sin, we need a Savior. Jesus is the only one who can save. That message is clear from beginning to end of the Scriptures. All roads do not lead to God. Only one does, Jesus Christ. We want to get to know who God is, get to know who Jesus Christ is as revealed in the word of God, the scriptures. And so the garments of salvation point to our need. But being arrayed in the robes of righteousness points to God's need to deal justly with the issue of sin and unrighteousness. Unrighteousness is our lot. But what we get is this exchange because of the ministry of the servant, Jesus Christ, who says, okay, I accept this assignment. I will proclaim good news to the poor. I will bring redemption. I will accept this assignment of having salvation become a reality for God's people. Salvation is our need, but righteousness needed to be satisfied for God. And so what happens is Jesus takes on our robe of unrighteousness as he goes to the cross. He bears the burden for our sin. He takes the punishment that was rightfully ours. The things we deserve, he got. The thing we didn't deserve, he gives us. Grace, forgiveness. He lived his life in our name as a human being so that by faith in him, we might live our lives in his name. That's the beauty of this exchange. He takes our garments of unrighteousness, and then in this beautiful exchange, what he gives us is his robe of righteousness that covers up all of our sins. You know, the beginning of the season of delight is the recognition of what Jesus Christ has done for each one of us. Where we begin to rejoice in the salvation that was purchased for us, the sacrifice that was made by such a great Savior. That delight comes from knowing that there is a God who looks at our faces and desires to shine upon it with delight. He can't do it while sin is still the barrier, but because of Jesus, 
He now no longer sees our sin when we accept Jesus as our Savior and Lord. Because what he sees instead is the robe of Jesus' righteousness. I grew up in a steel town surrounded by coal fields. And I would watch guys going off to work when I was a kid growing up. They'd go off spick and span clean in the morning. I don't remember spick and span. Does anybody ever use that anymore? Uh, I was a soap detergent. Um, they'd, guys would go off absolutely shining clean in the morning, and they'd come back, and the, the soot from the steel plant and from the coal mines would be uh, embedded in their grains. They weren't just dirty. They were dirty to the bone. And here's the picture I have for this exchange of what Jesus has done for us. He takes all of those deep, bone-deep sin stains in our lives, and he covers them over with his beautiful robe of righteousness so that all our sin stains are no longer in evidence We sang about from Psalm 103, as far as the east is from the west, so far have you removed our sins from us. That's the transaction at the cross of what Jesus has done for us. Maybe you're here today and you've never put your trust in Jesus as your Savior. Let me give you a simple ABC. If you've heard me before, you've probably heard me go through this before, and I'll do it again. But let me give you this simple ABC that can help you begin to discover delight in the Lord as he delights in you. The A is this. We all have something to admit. And what we have to admit is we're sinners. Now, what's sin? Well, sin is anything that's inconsistent with God's character and his will. That's about as broad a blanket definition of sin as I can give you. If it doesn't fit into God's character... It's sin. If it doesn't fit into God's will, it's sin. So we all have an admission. We're all imperfect. We all make mistakes. We all screw up. We all do things we wish we hadn't done. We don't do things we wish we had. It all kind of files into that one bucket that we call sin. So let me just give you something to try and clarify sin a little bit more for you. Often in the church, I'll ask people why they, God should let them into heaven. And far too often people say to me, well, I've lived a good life. I've been kind to my neighbors. And that's sort of like saying, um, I'm okay because God grades on the bell curve, and as long as I'm a little bit ahead of somebody else, I'm going in. But that's not the case. Let me define it for you a little bit further. Let's suppose I'm a pretty good person. I know that's a step of faith, but walk with me for a moment. Let's suppose I only sin four times a day. Now, you'll have to be careful with me because math is not my uh, forte, but I'm thinking that at the end of the week, after seven days, I have sinned 28 times. At the end of the month, I'm somewhere over 100. At the end of a year, I can't count them anymore. It kind of defies any boast about being pretty good. 
Because here's the standard. God's standard for getting into heaven is perfection. If you get one thing wrong, it's as good as having messed up the whole thing. And we all know we're not perfect. We can't meet the standard. And when I think about a year of sin, let's suppose that for every sin, it's like going to court and there's a charge sheet with my name at the top of it. This is Dan's sin. At the end of the year, I have a book full of charge sheets. At the end of my life, here's the first volume. And the beautiful thing about the exchange at the cross is this. Jesus took the book of my sin, the Father took the book of my sin, and he laid it on Jesus. So that the sin that's mine, he takes ownership of and deals with before the Father. That's being arrayed in the righteousness of Christ. So we all have something to admit, and that's that we're sinners. But we also have something to believe. And what we believe is that Jesus Christ is the only one who can save sinners. You'll get all kinds of messages all around the world from all kinds of people that you can get to heaven, you can get to nirvana, you can get to a place of peace with all kinds of other methods, usually that have to do with something you do for yourself. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the one message that comes and says, there's nothing you can do for yourself. It's all been done by Jesus on the cross. All you have to do is accept it, receive it. And so we believe that, as Jesus said, he is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other way to heaven but through him. And it's in the belief in that statement of the gospel that we begin to find life and forgiveness of sins. And it's there that we begin to experience the delight of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So we all have something to admit. We all have something to believe. And we all have something to commit to. And the thing is, human beings will commit their lives to something. We all do it. The question is, is what we're committing our lives to worthy of the worship we offer? And whatever we give our lives to becomes the object of our worship. We commit our lives to our vocations. And for many people, it becomes their God. We commit our lives to our families, and everything else becomes secondary to that, including relationship to God. Whatever you make your first priority will become the thing that you worship. It will be what you give your life to. And so there is a recognition that we will commit our lives to something, something, but there is only one thing that's worthy of the commitment of our lives, and that's Jesus Christ. And the way I think about it is this, when I commit my life to Jesus Christ, it's like I've got the deed to my life. And on this deed to my life, it says, this life is owned by Dan McKinnon. And at the bottom is a blank space that I sign. But when I commit my life to Christ, the lines get changed And I sign this deed of my life over to Jesus Christ, and I say, this life is no longer mine. It belongs to him who died for me and who set me free. That's how we commit our lives to Christ. So we all have something to admit, we all have something to believe, and we all have something to commit. And as we follow that ABC, 
we can step into the life that God intended for us where our image begins to get restored and we begin to see afresh the face of delight of the Father. And so the Messiah takes up his garments. He says, I delight greatly in the Lord because it is in him that this salvation comes for you and for me. It's a great image because it's the image of the bridegroom. That's the language that's used here. It's the image of the bride. Um, I have never seen an ugly bride. There is something about a wedding that makes a bride glow. That's the imagery. He talks about... The, bride, the bridegroom coming, dressed for this great occasion. The, the, the bride coming, dressed in her finery, speaking of the beauty that is, is being expressed by them. And again, in the ministry of the Messiah, that's where beauty begins to be restored in our lives. And an appreciation of beauty. Because what does the psalmist tell us? But all of creation declares the glory of God. It begins a a fresh acquaintance with the beauty of God that leads to delight and, and to worship. We have two reasons for delight. The first is that Christ willingly takes up the garments of salvation for us. And the second is that he fulfills the righteous demands of the law, setting us free. I'm not sure where you are in your relationship with God today, but as you kick off things this Sunday here at Bromley Road, here's my prayer, that you might begin to experience afresh a sense of the delight of the Father as he breathes life into you anew through the redemptive breath that comes through Jesus Christ. And that in that, you will find great delight. And that delight will lead to true worship. There's a prayer, Julian, if you want to go to the last slide, I know I haven't made your job easy today, but there's a prayer. We've sung it often in the church. It's a beautiful prayer, but I think it fits this occasion for us as we think about the delight of God in us and our desire to delight in him, it's this simple chorus that you've probably sung many times, Lord, prepare me to be a sanctuary, pure and holy, tried and true. With thanksgiving, I'll be a living sanctuary for you. A sanctuary is a place to serve God. It's also a place that's within our hearts, set apart for our Savior. I hope that as you go out into the barbecue, that you'll express delight to the people who who are serving you for the service that they're offering. I hope that as you mingle together, that you'll delight in offering some word of life and hope and encouragement to somebody you're in conversation with. And I hope that your delight will translate into service. 
ministries are starting up again, they don't happen by themselves. They all need people. But it begins with people whose hearts have been touched by the delight of God, who then want that to overflow into the lives of people around them. And I pray that Bromley Road will be one of these sanctuaries where the delight of God flows through you into this community and people come to taste and see that the Lord is good. Let's pray together. Lord, it's unfathomable for us to even begin to grasp, it seems, that you delight in us. Zephaniah 3.17 says, You delight in us and you rejoice over us with singing. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us that we are your workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for works of service. And so we just humbly bow before you this morning, and we thank you that you delight in us. By faith in Christ, sins removed, we get to experience Partially now on these earthbound shores, your delight. And we pray that your delight of us will result in our delight in you. And that as we delight in you, you will set our feet to dancing, our voices to singing, our hearts to to worship, and out of the overflow of our delight in you, may it be a a contagion that spreads throughout this community that others may taste and see that you are good. Thank you, Lord, for your great grace and mercy towards us. In Jesus' name, amen.